Hey, Mel. Oh, hey. Oh, hey. <laughs> it's you again. It is. It's almost getting a little bit repetitive, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I know. I think sometimes I just come in here and think, oh, there might be a nice surprise. And the best surprise is that you've got the jug on and there's coffee. <laughs> And yeah, I get to talk to someone else. But. You, you've trained me. And also, yeah, they're not talking to you directly is one of the better parts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, which we're going to be doing today with Liam Dalby. Says, I'm so excited about this. I have heard about We Will Rock You for a long time. Back when I actually started my little side journey of radio, when they were first going to release it, I was going to get Tim McLaren on and interview him and then just life happened. Yes, the world went to mud. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and yeah, I know that Liam's a latecomer to this project, but I really want to hear a little bit about the insight to the amount of work that goes into these things because I don't think people really appreciate that a lot of it is volunteer-driven. Mm. Yeah. And I love volunteers. <laughs> you are a huge volunteer fan. Yeah, I'm a volunteer. <laughs> so <laughs> exactly. And I, I, I'm hoping at the end of this, uh, we will get to appreciate how much you can actually get out of, you know, giving your time to something and a cause. I think so. And just for those who don't know, Liam is a musician, long-time musician, and he's just moved into, as Mel's been talking about, musical theatre. Yeah. Which I'm really interested to know how that transition went because it can be tough when you've mastered one particular domain to get pulled into another domain when people have a lot of expectation on you. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, this is Liam Dalby from Aubrey. And, yeah, let's do it. There you are. Can you see me and my flanny? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Proper COVID, lockdown <laughs> stuff. Look at you two a metre and a half apart. Oh, yes, that I was d- intentional. I actually just don't like Josh, so yeah. we always have that distance apart. <laughs> Which works for me, actually. To be yeah, honest. no, happy days. So what's not to like? Come on, let's be honest. Good bloke. Tell you what. <laughs> he is a good bloke. I'm not recording that bit as well. Yeah. Uh, I've already recorded it, sorry. <laughs> thanks so thanks so much for doing this. This is cool. Right, so are you happy with Liam Dalby? Just because I know Mel's gonna ask you something regarding that, but is that I what prefer Jesus, but Liam Dalby's fine. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, Liam Dalby's fine. Okay. <laughs> Liam Dalby, welcome. It's been a long time sure. coming this conversation and you and I have seen each other just day-to-day a few times randomly lately, and I know we've got a lot to talk about, but thanks for making the time. Most welcome, mate. Thanks for having me. Like I said earlier, uh, I'm flattered that anyone thinks what I've got to say is worth listening to. And we'll be the judge of that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I was and, if, and if we're not, the audience certainly will be. <laughs> so, Liam, for people who don't know you, I'll fill in a tiny little bit of the backstory, but then we might pass it over to you for things that get missed. Sure. You're one of the longest-running professional, then semi-professional, then full-time, then very busy musicians that I've ever met. And you've been mostly based around this area and, you know, times of your life you've been playing a lot more than other times. Is that still how, removing the COVID situation, is that still how you see yourself? Is that what you um, are as a musician or is that too limiting a term? No, that's that's pretty much, that's the crux of it, mate. I mean, it's always been, uh, for one reason or another, 
to do with, you know, financials or, you know, all sorts of other situations throughout life that we need to overcome. It's sort of had to shuffle in and out of different careers and things uh, to, to make ends meet or to make make things work. But music has always been a pretty productive, uh, I guess, business for me, working hard at it. But, yeah, absolutely, musician, you know, on your little aircraft travel forms where they ask you what you do you know, and you like to fill out what you – I'll put a few interesting ones in from time to time just to keep them on their toes, you know, like a, a you know, superstar or, or, you know. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say you can't you can't dangle that carrot without an example. Yeah, so oh, not I Jesus. Know, yeah. I've been pulled up more than once and, and had the elbow in the side from Ebony like, shut up, you know, and just sitting <laughs> making up names. He goes, what is your real profession? I'm like, why is it relevant, mate? I just want to lift on your plane. But I've come up with some pretty interesting ones but uh, yeah I think Superstar was the one that got me the most trouble uh, at the airport but yeah no musician mate I think that's the safest bet (laughs) a self-employed musician. So where did this all start for you like this passion of music? I was sort of lucky I mean I I will probably dabble on it a bit later but family's sort of always been um, musical I mean my Christmas has had uh, my great-grandma now she would always have a piano and my pop was in a well-known Aubrey band called the syndicate so was my mum at one point and dad come to think of it but they um, they were touring around for a long time Aubrey I mean like they used to do dances and things back in the day he was a saxophonist and a clarinet and all those kind of things but he ended up having to join the Navy and uh, because uh, he didn't have a real job for public pressure back in the day caused him to join the Navy in the band. So he was a Navy musician for a long time. So the whole family and then obviously my mum's side, I don't know a lot about. She passed away when I was five, but I, they all, her brother's a banjo player and her family were musical as well. But mum and dad were a duo. So uh, up until she passed away and then we um, – I used to go along to set up with my dad at the commercial club and he'd be carting the huge boxes. They were, you know, we used to call them the fridge, like these bins and massive speakers they used they built and used to carry around with huge horse floats and stuff back in the day before technology made everything small. Yeah, so I used to go to those as a kid and listen to them play like Eagles songs. Um, I think it was with George Forster and Andy, um, Andy Moore and uh, yeah, Bob Bickerton as well at some point. There's some pretty well-known musicians around town and, and he's been in heaps of bands. But, um, yeah, started from that. So I've had music uh, as a job. They were my parents. That was their job for, for, for many, many years. And then I think my first gig was with my old man at a pub. He just sort of said, yeah, what are you doing on Saturday? I was like, oh, no, I would have been maybe 15, 16, probably 17. And um, my sister was 16 when she started doing it before me. But he said, yeah, come, come to a gig. So he'd, he'd collect duo money and give me some pocket money. <laughs> I'm like, you cheeky bugger. So I've been doing it for the family for a long, long time. Yeah, it's, that's where it all sort of began, I guess. Yeah, so you're really one of the few people I know that has a multi-generational musical kind of lineage around here where you've all been live performers. And you you mentioned in there that, Oh, yeah, my mum was in that. And, oh, yeah, my dad was in that. I'm assuming that's going to probably happen a fair bit today because between everybody in the family, you've touched on so many different acts and projects over the last however many decades. Oh, it's crazy. Can you you just tell us, for anyone who's in or or out of music, maybe some of the challenges or complications or even some of the positive things about playing music with your family as opposed to growing up playing with other people? (laughs) Ah, dear. Uh, one of the funniest ones, my dad has no filter. He has no filter. He's about as tactful as a sledgehammer. And um, so mid-song on stage or 
or something, you'll be, you know, there'll be a crowd at, oh, it's a pub, you know, a crowd of 100 people, and he'll, um, uh, he'll turn around and, and scream not far enough away from the microphone, like a key at you or a, it's E flat, or, you know, <laughs> or, you know like, and everyone just sort of turns and you're like, what? Yeah. <laughs> or some strange look, being, the, being your parent, he sort of can't help himself. I think he does with other people as well, but <laughs> sort of, yeah, that's probably the worst of it. But, but we've never, never been good at practicing, so we don't really sit down and, and work things out together. We sort of just turn up and go, oh, yeah, that's in, uh, that's in F sharp, mate. Good luck, you know, and listen, and use your ears a bit. So if you don't know the chord, there's just a gap. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but no, so that's probably one of the funniest things, I guess, for the old man. I, um, I do remember thing. seeing, I'm not sure if you were quite performing at that point, but I know your sister was at the time and your dad at an O week during, I think, oh, during my uh, second year of uni. Was it Slosh Cod? Or was it was it, the Slosh Cod at CSU. <laughs> And there was a lot of, I don't really know the song, but if we're looking at each other eye to eye, we'll figure it out. Correct. And hate for that. Yeah. Hate and I that. think your dad got over the line purely on experience and your sister maybe more so on just, she just had a, a talent. <laughs> and also <laughs> she she obviously knew your dad's looks and mannerisms well enough to know. Oh, well, yes. Yeah. There's okay. I'm in the wrong spot here. Question. I need to move or Yeah. <laughs> Well, what would generally happen, and it's probably, you know, inside information, I'll be shocked, but it's um, it generally would happen is my sister would formulate, like I put together a list of songs she'd like to do, and she'd know the lyrics and, and, the, and how they went, and she'd just uh, give that list to the old, old boy, and he'd go, um, yeah, right, I will we'll put that song on, so we'd have drums and bass come in, and, and she'd have to remember where to come in, and, and he would just know, being told what key it's in, and it's only eight eight chords in a key and you can generally pick the chord progression fairly any pop song pretty straightforward chord progression unless it's like dire straits or something with it anyway so he he would generally just thug along with that based on where her melody was going so yeah he generally okay so sorry Lib. so it was actually can you just let everyone know who isn't familiar with who your sister is because the majority of the audience probably aren't who she is and what she did in the band but yeah, okay. Your dad was more so following her, so she was really the leader of that band. Well, yeah, she was asked to come along. So the band dad's always been the, uh, I guess, the, as the equipment, the sound guy, the, you know, this, the roadie, the, the guitarist and singing, and he'll throw harmonies in once he works out what words you're singing. And um, speak of the devil. Thanks, Dad. And, um, and, and she, would, uh, she would have a lot to do with the song selection based on her youth and experience. So she would tag along and go, right, well, this is what we should play. And, and quite, <laughs> quite strong opinions on that. If you'd ask, you ask her to play Love Shack or something, she would, uh, she would give you a pretty scowling look. But she, um, so she basically sang and danced and led those songs and, and dad would just, uh, with backing tracks pre-recorded, he would, which usually I did, he would um, have drums, bass and piano or whatever in there and he would play along with his guitar chords or lead breaks and stuff. So so she was singer, he was guitar and singer, um, yeah. And when you say, sorry, Liam, that you did, are you saying you programmed? Yeah. You yes, programmed those backing tracks and put them together? Yeah. Yeah, do you remember back in the day when they had the, we had a JV-10, was it JV-10-10, old boy? JV-10-10, the module, yeah. So just for the get, audience, Liam's dad is actually in the same room. <laughs> yeah, he's just coming to look after my four-year-old happy birthday for yesterday, Boston. He, um, so, so we would have the computer, you know, the MIDI files set up. You could just download those and they're basically just lines on a screen with a keyboard down the other side and you would have to uh, dictate to the computer what, what, how long those 
those lines were based on how, you know, I don't want to go into it too much, but how long you wanted that sound to go for. And then you would go through individually in real time. You would have to record the drums, the kick. You would have to sit there for three and a half minutes and click in every uh, kick drum and, 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 and then wait for it to record. And then you would go back and you would then do the snare drum next to it. So you'd be sitting there going boom, boom, boom. And then all of a sudden, next one's boom, ting, boom, ting. And you'd be <laughs> So it would take hours. We did that. I did... Um, Gosh, hundreds of songs with that in that, but some of them you could do in time, but because the the module would only do one sound at a time, so you couldn't do multiple sounds, and then you pick bass tones and all this stuff. So it was a lot of fun doing all that, but yeah. So, so I'd set that up. So how cheeky were you? Did you ever just throw in a real, you know, the incorrect chord progression right in the middle of a song? Did you ever loop it backwards? Or oh, it's tempting to throw a reverse symbol in there, but you've got, um, you know, the old keyboards that had the dog bark. Gosh, that that. And then whoop, whoop. it just every so often I thought I could throw this in somewhere, you know, and uh, and really stir up. But no, nah, I never did. Professionalism is the key, mate. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so just quickly, what is your sister's name? So my sister's name is Akal. Akal. A K A L. Yeah, she's uh, she was born at home and named after the Indian midwife. So oh wow. She name is Akal and Akal Dalby, obviously, and she uh, yeah she's now in Melbourne. Was doing a lot of Spanish stuff down there with a new partner, and um, yeah, pretty much she's an occupational therapist, so she doesn't need to do anything. She's uh, she just sits back and makes lots of money. <laughs> do you like coffee? Yes, I do like coffee. Do you know how we could make each other really happy? If you got on to punchingsideways.com and hit the buy me a coffee button and hooked me up with some caffeine. That would be great. You've just, you've just told us about all this stuff that you do without any preparation, except for recording, like the backing track. Tell me a little bit about the level of practice that had to go into... Oh, sorry about the dog Is that your keyboard dog? It's your keyboard dog. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me a little bit about the amount of actual rehearsing you had to do for We Will Rock You. Oh, my gosh. Oh, wow. That, that whole process, so that was my first, I mean, I did Oliver when I was a kid, but I, at school, sorry, I got out of that, rehearsed up that and ready to go, but I had to get out of that for a different gig, so I couldn't be there for the, for the show. So I never really did one. So We Will Rock You was um, three nights a week, Monday, uh, Wednesdays and Sundays, and it was generally about three or four hours each. It was it was really interesting because they actually they actually um, the people who knew. Um, so for the people that knew, it would be um, easy to understand what was going on. But me, having never done it before, I would walk into into this, and we were we were rehearsing some scene that didn't really have any relevance, or didn't really understand where it fit in. So there was a heap of rehearsal on stuff. You go, where, where does this fit in? Yeah, it was really confusing. But they did a lot of a lot of practice on on a big group scenes and a lot of parts. And all of a sudden, it it wasn't really until show night it all comes together. And you go, oh wow, I see the vision now. But it wasn't until that time I understood that there was a heap of rehearsal in with that. Not so much singing, more so words. There was like five or four or five hundred odd lines I had to remember, and um, eight or nine songs. And they weren't the original words. They were words that Ben Elton had uh, used his artistic license with and, and obviously 
contractor with Queen was allowed to change. Um, so they were relevant to his script in, in such a way that it made more sense based on what, what the story was telling, not necessarily what the song actually meant. So what made you, I'm imagining there's a lot of things there. If you're saying it doesn't make any sense to you at all, what made you so comfortable trusting the process? Was it Cassie and Tim? Like, did they just make it seem like this is what we've got to do? Yeah, look, I, when I first met Tim. So we're talking Tim McLaren for anyone that. McLaren for anyone who doesn't know. Yep. So, yeah, when I first met Tim, Tim McLaren, he um, sat me down and he said, right, this is our, this is our third try, Liam. We've, I've been told about you from a few people and, and la, 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 la. And I sort of, I was very flattered, actually. I was, he was very, uh, very positive about what I'd done. Um, and he, um, he said, look, long story short, we've, we've been cancelled twice due to COVID. So in the end, opening night was about 880-odd days after they first got the approval to do, this, do the show, the script. So we're talking to two and a bit years, right? So he comes to me and goes, right, we've done two years. The bloke that we had for the first two times from Geelong is now no longer available. We can't have him. Long story short, a bit of emotional blackmail. If you can't do it, and we can't find someone else. Where else? You know, we spent all this money on the rights and oh, and uh, and we and can't do it. So I'm like, well, now I can't really say no. <laughs> but um, but terrified in the process. But he um he he gave me so much confidence in that conversation initially. He went through some things he'd done, and I won't go into that. But, but you know, but but some really quality things and just the way he spoke and and, the, and I understood fairly quickly the level of expectation he he was after. And, uh, and and his level of knowledge in, uh, in the industry, based on what I knew about music industry, uh, applied to uh, to musical theatre MT, which is very different. I've come to learn, but um, still, having said that, was very was vast. He's a drummer. He's a singer. He's a, a producer himself. He's done countless shows in, in big companies with big names and the people. You know, some of the original workings of the show you know not the not the ones that you do at high school the ones the blokes that wrote it the blokes that did it so so he gave me the confidence in that first conversation that this guy was talking about this guy sounded like he was uh not mucking about he was he was keen to get it right and he was going to do a good job of it based on how we felt about the queen songs themselves the effort he put in thus far everything it just made me think look this would be this would be great this would be an awesome show and then knowing i knew um i went to small my sister went to school with chantelle uh hutchins he's was chantelle lesberg at school um and she's a fantastic dancer and choreographer and she did an amazing job and and nikki strauss also i knew as a singing teacher based around town i knew that she had some pretty pretty strong accolades under her belt so i was like yeah this this has got the the, the you know the the, the right attributes to be an awesome show, and uh, I reckon it was in the end. <laughs> I thought it was fantastic. A pretty cool thing to be part of. So tell me about that first night, the feeling, like, or the lead-up to that, knowing that all this work and then all of a sudden, like, I imagine there's a lot of anxiety. I don't know, this is just me putting myself in that, a lot of anxiety about, like, this first night, like, how's it going to go there's so much build-up like you said 880 days of oh, build-up so opening night yeah, yeah, yeah um and sorry so Liam, can you also just tell people which role you were playing and what the expectation was on you as a performer oh uh, yeah okay so so i was i was galileo figaro so a lot of people thought oh we were rocky so you're freddie and i went no 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 so I could read you the blurb, I suppose, but it's it's Galileo Figaro. It's set in the future, and he's the main guy. He's the dreamer. He's the guy that 
hears all these things in his head, all these song lyrics and words, and has no idea what they mean. And then, um, and, but he's pretty much the guy throughout the whole show that uh, is found by the, the Bohemians, the group of people that the rebels. It's a bit like the Star Wars story. You got the Imperial, you know, the Killer Queen and her uh, her crew, and and they're trying to catch the rebel Bohemians, and then they find him and they discover the last remaining instrument on the planet and um, using his dreams and memories and things like that, all the clues and figure it out. So he's throughout the whole thing, sings a handful of songs with his offside of Scaramouche. She was fantastic and um, it's pretty full on. So it was about 400 odd lines I had to learn, as I say, and I think eight, eight, eight solo or duo songs plus a few other sort of group singing songs as well. So it's pretty full on. Was- now the feeling, like. Yeah, the feeling. So, actually, to be perfectly honest, the feeling was worse the the first rehearsal I had with Tim and the crew. So, there's this big build-up. He said, you know, he, I went into the room and he's got this big, you know, Liam's this and that and the other, and I'm just going, oh, you know, my God, what, what, are, you know, what are you doing, mate? You're building this up. I might suck at this. And, um, and anyway, so, oh, and then after hearing everybody sing, act, accents, and obviously not not appreciating what two and a half year or two years worth of pre-practice build-up meant and, and how far along everyone was. I, I, I was very close to walking out the door going, oh, my God, I'm way out of my head. Uh, and it was Scaramouche and, and a couple of the guys said, no, no, you'll be fine. You've, you know, you've come in late. It's hard. But I, bearing in mind, I've, stu- I've stood in a room with, um, you know, Jessica Malboy and a whole bunch of people in front of, you know, Mark Holden and Marsha Hines and not felt like that. <laughs> it was pretty full on. I was like, wow, this is intense. Again, just a bit of a fish out of water situation. But come opening night, I, other than the first song, I, I don't really function without a crowd. So I sort of, that's why I never really audition for anything and, and I never get the role if I do because I, I need, you know, a couple hundred people there or at least five um, <laughs> people that are listening. So, um, yeah, I... Um, yeah, I, I struggled throughout all the rehearsals to sort of switch on and, and do what I had to do as, as just the way I function. Come opening night, it was just like, all right, here we go. Everything kind of just fell into place and um, I, I stopped thinking about lines I had to remember and they just kind of fell out and, and uh, fed off the crowd and off, off we went. So that, that was more relaxed, I think, than the first rehearsal with people who, who knew better at the time. <laughs> that sounds, t- yeah, that does sound terrifying. When people build yeah. you up, you're like, no, 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 just, just let yeah. me come in as this novice and right. hopefully impress you. <laughs> Don't tell yeah. everyone I'm good. That's too no much expectation. No disappointments, yeah. <laughs> what, what, was, what was the credential that maybe they were saying that you had that they tried to really push over the line with the other members of the cast? Was it the Australian Idol success stuff oh. or...? No, they kept waffling on about, you know, how how well-known Aubrey was. I mean, Aubrey, I'm like, good or bad, I'm not sure. But <laughs> Liam's got a huge following. I'm like, mate, I was struggling to get 10 people to turn up to my gigs. Thankfully, he didn't go any further abroad than that. It was more of a local well-known guy and he's going to bring heaps of people. And I've just gone, ah, <laughs> like I said, I'll, I'll put it, I'll put, I used to post where I'm playing and, you know, half a dozen people would turn up and then I'd go, ah, I might just save the energy. <laughs> so... <laughs> So it's, I didn't think that held much water, but he seemed to think so. But, yeah, that was probably the most uncomfortable. Uh, he didn't really talk about Idol or anything like that. So, Are you watching any of The Voice or anything at the moment? And do, do you go, I wish I was in that right now? Or are you just happy that that, that era is over? Are you sure you want me to answer this one? <laughs> um, 
Yeah, I will. Just the, that preface makes me want to know what you're going to say. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it, it actually, it, it, it frustrates me no end, to be honest. I um, I didn't go into Idol with the right mindset when I went on there. I was quite anti at all being, you know, the rebel musician and not really interested in this big machine that was taking over, which coincidentally is is the same uh, storyline uh, in the show I've just done where the where Globosoft was um, taking over the kids and American Idol actually destroyed music by <laughs> and the, the, their, their fame lasted, what's, what's the line, their fame lasted less time than it took to play their records. That was the line. So Idol killed music. Um, so that was kind of, to be honest, that was in 2006 my, my mindset and it wasn't until I went on the concert with Kate Derouge and Lee Harding that the producer actually came up to me after I did my two songs on the show and said, you have to come on the show. I said, well, no, I don't. And he said, oh, yeah, you do. And, and, and it started to get me from here. So talking about the voice and idol, he, um, I'd been asked if I wanted to be in the 24 months before that, mind you, and said no because I was doing my own single uh, EP at the time. And the fella helping me with that had some influence. Um, and then so that got me my, my knickers in a twist, if you like. And then, then going on the show, uh, then sorry, going on the concert, that went quite well. And then they approached me afterwards and I said, well, look, I don't want to line up. And he goes, all right, well, here's my mobile number. And I went, really? And he goes, yep. I said, well, here's my mobile number. Just uh, give me a ring and I'll, and I'll come out and see you. So there was no lining up. There was, there, was, there was technically three auditions before you actually sit in front of anyone of consequence. And then they, then they ship you off to Sydney and make that out to be the first audition. But there's about four or five before that. So they skipped the line and, and I said, well, look, I'm not going unless my sister can come because she's better than me. And he said, yep, no worries, bring her. <laughs> so we both ended up in the finals. Um, but the whole, that whole mentality of it gave me a bit of a, gave me a bit of a bad taste. And I went in there with a bad attitude and, and, and it showed, you know, I sort of didn't really say many nice things to Carl Sanderlands and, uh, or Mark Holden for that matter. Um, Marsha was, just sweet, lovely, so sweet. But watching the show now and things like The Voice, it is just a television show. And that's something hindsight's taught me, knowing that it really isn't about music. It's about demographics. It's about age groups. It's about selling records. And don't think for a second, your votes count. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm not, I have no proof of that, but um, there's no way that they're going to uh, print off, you know, 200,000 CDs back in the day of, you know, Guy Sebastian and Shannon Noll and wonder who's going to win and then throw the rest in the bin, whoever comes second. There's just, there's, there's no logic in that. So, or, and it is a business. So I, I look at it and think, oh, I saw the little, um, we're watching seven plus at the moment where Ebony's back into Ali McBeal and there's a lot of the voice ads on that. And that's just all the, oh my gosh, the show would be worth it if it was just you and all this stuff. I think, gosh, they just every year have to say something slightly better than last year. Mm -hmm. And it just turns into such a, uh, it's just not about music and it's not about the singer. I, I know that for a fact because at the time I've improved a lot since then, but, but at the time I was far worse than I am now. And I watched people with Jessica Malboy style talent get told to go home, you know, because they had their demographic of Jessica Malboy and I'm standing there going, okay, I've got long hair and I'm the hippie kid, you know, with a beard and whatever. And and then we had, you know, Jessica Malboy and you had, you know, your clean cut Dean Geyer and the Irish bloke that won it. And you, it's, a, it's, a, it's a casting program It's a, and you all get a slot, you know, and you've got to fill all the demographics. So we're all marketed to and sold. So I, I, I have no interest in going on any of those shows anymore. I don't want to be the old guy with the kids crying on stage. I'm doing it for my kids. Oh. <laughs> 
wank wank. So okay, it's not Liam, ma- can I ask a question then? Yeah. These people that are on these shows are no less talented at the art of singing a song than maybe what they were 20 years ago. If anything, some of these young people are truly extraordinary yeah, just absolutely. at performing a vocal. Yeah. What would you say as someone that's been through that machine and if any of them happen to be listening from around here that thinks, oh, well, one of my goals is to get on The Voice, if they've got truly that amount of talent, where would you want them to redirect that? Very good question because uh, I don't think anyone has the answer. The problem with The Voice and with the idols of the world is that marketing and everything, they are the biggest machine to get somewhere. And I've had people, you know, sort of people that have succeeded so sort of say, oh, mate, just, just, you know, get the free publicity. Like, to give you an indication, I, I actually, I've heard a rumour that Jessica Melboy was actually signed to Sony before she went. So the idol was a free publicity type thing. And, and, and that's just the way they use that machine to get people out there because it is so efficient. Doing it on your own, gosh, I've had no success myself. I've got, I've got 14 listeners on, um, on my Spotify at the moment, monthly listeners, 14. So I'm wrapped about that. Thank you, those 14 people that choose to listen to my album with Neon City and, and, and my original stuff prior to that. But, mate, it's just it's a, it's a stab in the dark. It really is. I mean, depending on what level you're trying to get to, I mean, uh, there's great success. I mean, I've got a house, two cars, wife and kid, you know, sort of thing. Um, what is your measure of success? Where do you want to be? If you want to be Justin Bieber, then, uh, you know, it's, it's a it's – a, Long way to the top if you if you want to rock and roll. And it's 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 hard, man. I, I sort of measure my success as I've made it. You know, I have. I've got, you know, like I said, things that I've – that any person would, you know, aspire to have. And I've, up until COVID, I had a, a successful business where I could go out and work two nights a week and get drunk and get paid to do it and <laughs> have a really good time and uh, and go home with a – uh, with a wage, you know, so that's for me is is success. So for a new singer, depending what they want, it's a it's a broad broad question with with several several different answers. But you know, don't give up. Do what you want. There is a level of compromise in any any walk of life. So everyone that says don't don't change, I think that's recipe for disaster. The amount of times I've been told that was absolute crap, Liam, get out, and I turned around and came back and did it again. And, and learned from that and didn't walk away. That's compromise, that's learning. But, um, yeah, never give up on what you truly want to get, but just be aware that in any walk of life that you may not get to that level of success. But if you're shooting for the stars and you get to the moon, that's still a pretty good outcome. So you've just got to be honest with what you really want out of your singing career, I think. I don't know if that's valid advice, but in my opinion, that's you, you don't give up. and uh, But be realistic about the world we live in and the, and the, and the bit music business the way it is and you'll have less disappointment and more success. Yeah, I think um, a lot of people now maybe are knowing this a little bit more but if you really want, well, to be deemed successful, and I'm saying your interpretation of success is different to someone else's t- interpretation of success but, you know, to be famous and not, like it's a business the same way that you're saying, like the voice and that, you have to operate yourself in a business. Like, yes, there's a level of passion and that's your product is your music, but that's a product. Like there is so much more, like you said, of decisions that you have to make. And really, if you if you want to be successful, inverted commas, and, you know, get 
15 listeners on Spotify potentially instead of. <laughs> I'm killing it. Like, that, are streaming in. <laughs> I, I, I'm like to say, I don't like that self promotion thing either. Like, I just like rocking up. You make people happy, and if they're there, then that's cool. And if they're not, but that self promotion thing can be a little bit of a, a mental battle sometimes. But it's it really is. The, it seems to be the people that are doing more are okay to sort of make that decision to maybe put themselves out there a little bit more. You have to advocate for yourself sometimes. Yeah. You really do. And and to be, it's a brutal comment I'm about to make, but it's generally the ones that don't realise how bad they are are the ones that are most confident in telling you how good they are. (laughs) It's it's so frustrating. Even a couple of the people uh, that are doing really quite well that were on Idol with me or on other other shows or other successes – and I was in the finals of Road to Tamworth as well uh, a couple of years after Idol. Met a lot of really nice people in that. That was nice. Country music's good. Um, but you see, and it's just that blind, sorry, such a brutal way to explain it, uh, explain it sorry, but the blind, um, I'm so good, mum says I'm cool attitude that puts them out there and it actually works. And you think, oh, it's sort of, it, it's cringeworthy, but, you know, they're doing it and they're doing well and you think, all right, Good for you, but I couldn't say what you're saying. You know, I couldn't <laughs> yeah. say, my next album is the most amazing thing you'll ever hear. Come and listen to me. You won't be disappointed. It makes me want to vomit. But they, um, <laughs> I'm like, turn up if you want, piss off if you don't. You know, like, I don't care. <laughs> we'll all be dead soon. Don't worry about it. Just, you know, move on. Righto, mate. Well, we probably will catch up with you hopefully in person. When all yeah. this craziness dies down a little bit, hopefully. Yeah, as soon as I get And just for anyone that might be tuning in, knowing you mostly from We Will Rock You, what is the current state of the production and did you finish your current run? And if not, is there any prospect or timelines on that or anything you can talk about? I don't know how much of it I'm actually sort of – allowed to touch base on look i would love to tour that show I, I i think several of the guys in the in the company would love to as far as i'm aware that, that that's a not going to happen um but i think we'd be allowed to but, but based on the feeling and i think we'd all appreciate 880 days of trying to get this thing going and and having a relatively you know i mean every audience Every crowd, sorry, was capped at half capacity. So that's a bit of a kick in the guts for the people that forked out all that money to get the licenses and stuff. But I can't see that going anywhere further as much as I'd love it to be doing. I'd love to be doing that again uh, to full capacity crowds and um, and and really having a good time and, and getting everyone that really wanted to see it to see it and abroad. I don't think that's going to happen. There's probably – I know of a couple of things that are in the pipelines again – uh, moving forward, totally different to that through the, through the companies that we've worked with. But again, there's a level of we've just worked for two years and had no, or three years, sorry, nearly, uh, and had no guarantee being able to actually perform and get a you know make it a viable business decision on it. So it's very hard for people now, those same people, to then commit to any kind of investment and time, both time, money mm-hmm. uh, wise to, to, to push forward. And that's what COVID's done, I think, made it very difficult for people to have confidence in, in, in the future enough to, to really invest themselves. I'm sure they will. I'm sure that's just a, just a momentary thing while people come down off the, off the big, you know, ride that we've all been on. But um, can I ask it, you this then, Liam, 
let's take it maybe from the macro talking about the whole project down to the most micro. Yep. Just to finish up for today, what is one thing that you personally are going to take out of the performance or what little performance you did get to do? a skill or a memory or whatever else that you're going to hang on to? Is there something you think back and you're like, well, even though we didn't get to do much of it, that's something I can carry with me forever? Uh, there's a moment at, on closing night, I, the, the crowd, the, the phone's out, and the, and I don't think I've been able to do that in my all my years of playing um, playing music or being in, a, in There's been some good ones, but that moment, singing Bohemian Rhapsody, crowd full of people, and all of the guys backstage uh, singing along with us, and um, yeah, oh, yeah, I forget that. That was that's you know that's a tearjerker. That that was just priceless. Right, Emma. Thank you so that's much amazing. for sharing. Thank that. you. Yeah, that's great. Thanks for having me, guys. I really right. appreciate it. Liam Dalby, Liam Ty. Yeah, Liam, Facebook. Yeah, Liam, Liam yeah. Ty. Oh, I didn't get around to tell you why. Yeah. <laughs> There's no time. Uh, I'll tell you anyway. It's because. Um, I have two pages, a business page for music and I have a personal page. And when people look up Liam Dow because my banner's up the back, obviously my personal page comes up and they look at me patting the dog or, you know, something silly or totally irrelevant. (laughs) So I changed my name because then when you look for me, my page with all the relevant music stuff comes up because I assume that if you're friends with me, you know who I am and you know my names. Yes. Liam Dalby. And if you're looking for me for music reasons and um, you're Googling me, then hopefully that page comes up first. So. Yeah, you are a businessman. Yes, you got to think of something. Still in business, Liam Dalby, entertainment. (laughs) Righto, mate. Well, thanks so much for joining us. Hopefully, we'll get to do this in person one day. And, well, we surely will. Yeah. And, yeah, just if you are interested in Liam and you don't know much about him, you can go find some of his work on Spotify. And if you're a local musician and you want to hear some really interesting production and musicality, you can check out Neon City because there's some really textured, layered stuff going on in that. And it's really a listening to kind of music in a set of headphones in my opinion fantastic the guys the artists in that band are second to none in my opinion beautiful music they did some really good stuff and i'm not referring to myself (laughs) (laughs) i've actually i've actually put some of those up with us so thank you guys thank you cheers liam thank you see ya So that interview was great. What I'm laughing at right now is Josh's ability to give himself whiplash by pressing a record button in our studio. Yes. I tried to reach about two feet without moving my butt. (laughs) (laughs) He doesn't have go-go gadget arms. They're uh, just no-no gadget. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, that was super interesting and I think it sort of highlighted that the Liam Dalby in person isn't necessarily the Liam Dalby that you see on stage or performing. They're pretty different, yeah. He's a quiet, chilled guy and I, it just leans into the whole entertainment psyche, right? Like when you're there, you're... When you're on stage, even in MC or you're performing comedy or anything like that, you've got a show to put on. So you just flip flip a level and it seems like he has a character that he can put on when it comes to performing. Yeah. For those who haven't seen him, he can be on stage super in your face, super confident, in his own words, even a little belligerent at times towards an audience, a little confrontational, but just trying to get people involved. And in person, he is 
well, I'm not sure how well you knew him before today, Mel, but he's a very warm person. Yeah. In person. He's quiet. I don't know if subdued is the right word at all, but he's just he's just a lovely guy. Oh, I think subdued is pretty good. He looked like yeah. he was sitting there in a robe. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> just look like we're skyping due to COVID at the moment, so just so you know, it's all safety. Yes. And we get to sit one and a half metres apart from each other, which I'm all about because I don't like being close to Josh anyway. Well, if I could have got that chair any closer to the wall, yeah, I would have had you pretty much sitting in the window. <laughs> this is true. This is true. It's not like it hasn't been done before. I think he's going to try and evolve a way to just call me in as well and just be talking to screens. <laughs> so Liam, I think, mentioned after the call, and we try not to talk too much about that, that he had a disastrous gig he got booed off stage during support a supporting slot for a band called Kiss Stroyer. Yeah. And it got me thinking that he's obviously done some work on himself that he laughed about that. Mm-hmm. When I think back about all of my worst gigs, there's a couple that stick out in my head and I haven't really done any work on looking for the good bits about it to yeah, be able okay. to laugh about them, like just a couple of shockers. Yeah. And- that's why I'm sharing something that happened after the interview. I think that was maybe my number one takeaway was that he's really okay with the idea of failing and looking back and just thinking, well, that's what happened. I, think I, I met some nice people. That's what he it came out. He said, oh, well, I met this person was great though. But yeah, you can always meet people. This is what I think about anything that you do, whether it's shit or not shit, there is an experience attached to that and you can learn from it or you can channel it to direct you to work a little bit harder, but never just take it as just, oh, that was shit. There's something to take away from it. That's quite profound, mate. <laughs> it's just, yeah. <laughs> and, and we're back. <laughs> it's not hashtag producer Mel, it's no. <laughs> hashtag profundity Mel. Uh, profundity. <laughs> Look, we're back now, don't worry. Yeah, that, okay. that doesn't last very long. Like, Give me a coffee. Yeah. Look, seriously, like if you don't want to listen to me being all like intellectual and philosophical, then hook me up with some coffees, please. You can go to <laughs> punchingsideways.com to buy us said coffees. And I probably won't keep putting in inspirational music under Mel's little inspirational parts in future, I promise. Okay. Thanks, Mel. We better run. But yeah, yeah thank you to Liam and thanks if you're a first-time listener. Yeah, thanks for listening. And thanks if you're a many-time listener for sharing the show. It's been happening a bit lately, so we appreciate it. Laters.